0: So today we have James, Professor James Walsh with us and he is a criminal law barrister who was called to the bar in nineteen ninety-four. Probably
1: before you were born. <laughs> it's a very depressing thought. <laughs>
0: Uh, he uh, has a professorial seat at BBP University and City Law School, uh, where he taught me. And he is an expert, that's why he's here today, for his expertise on delivering persuasive communication, for which he has been, uh, well, he's been flown all around the world in order to do this, skin seminars in the USA, Kuwait, Saudi, if you want to, where else have you been, James?
1: Um... The Gulf is unpopular there, it seems, strangely. Bahrain, Oman, um, otherwise online, Brazil, Mexico, all sorts. Brilliant.
0: And have you, you mentioned um, an article that potentially you're writing on this subject. Before we dive into it.
1: Um, yes. Well, I'm talking soon at a large digital policing conference uh, in Birmingham. So ahead of that, I'm, I'm doing an article on mental agility. Brilliant. Trying to help police officers and law enforcers think about disclosure and things and, and the agility that they need to give the defence what the defence requires.
0: Brilliant. And today we're sort of talking a sort of a similar but slightly different from that. It's more focused on the psychology of decision-making, not from the police perspective, but in the courtroom. So the role of the jury and the judge and uh, yeah, how it can be open to the sort of... Uh, Uncertainty of the human condition and our imperfect sort of psychology? Because we sort of assume in the courtroom the legal system relies on people being quite rational and being able to judge cases based on the evidence before them. How fair would you say that is?
1: Yes, I mean, I, I think um, if we look at the, one of the most eminent and important psychologists recently is this chap Daniel Kahneman who uh, got a Nobel Prize for economics for a book about psychology. And what he really did is to deconstruct the idea that people are that rational, they're they're not. Um, And he really applied the thought about biases and systematic thinking um, and seeing that we, we can be prone to systematic errors... And he points out error after error after error that our brains um, are are wired for. And if you look through human evolution, you can see why they're wired that way. Uh, And so our, our societies have evolved faster than our brains have. And our society now asks us questions and demand things of us that our brain's not really uh, designed to cope with. This is what I mm. just find so, so interesting. And he showed that people acting economically aren't as rational, which m- much economics is based on the presumption that people will always act in their own economic interest. Mm. What
0: sort of rational, what is it, rational theory? Or something,
1: yes, you know? I think, I, I, I make it very, very clear I'm not an economist. No, um, no but... sorry, neither of us are economists. <laughs> Um, but of course, then we, we have to turn this in on ourselves and say, well, h- how rational are we, or any of us, in the professional sphere? And I think one of the things we, we'll, we might talk about in a moment is, is who is likely to be more rational: the combination of twelve jurors who are biased, but in many different ways, and perhaps mm-hmm. they all cancel each, they cancel each other out, versus a judge. Who, who do we correctly assume? Um, that judges w- will be unbiased mm. um, and, and little things like you know would a judge hearing a case at ten o 'clock in the morning make a different decision than at two o 'clock in the afternoon
0: yes,
1: can judges possibly be um, as fickle as to be guided by the time of the day, how hungry they are, uh, and, and things like that and mm. there is emerging research on on all these quite painful and difficult subjects for, yes. for those that hope the system is rational
0: yes, I think this What you've touched on there is very interesting because, as you say, it is a very difficult subject and quite a a difficult one to uh, even accept because in in accepting it, we kind of accept that it is an imperfect system. Of course, accepting it is the first step to providing mitigation to overcoming what is cognitive bias and how that can affect the legal system and how that can potentially uh, hinder the... um, hinder our, our rule of law but is there anything that you would recognize in sort of training or or anywhere really which is going in any way to recognize uh the role of cognitive bias and sort of train for it or sort of mitigate for it at the moment
1: i think the the biggest success for me by a mile is the change in sentencing procedure from an art to something much more like a science. Mm. Um, People in the decision-making science field will will talk about noise in decision-making, and and, and what they mean by that is that um, people ought to make consistent decisions on the same evidence time after time. Mm. But the research shows absolutely alarmingly if you do what's called a noise audit you look at your group of professionals and say are are they making consistent decisions or or, or are they very temperamental and certainly in America you just take data of what judges are are doing in sentencing because this is Mm -hmm. now in in, in the open domain so you you, you know it's not private people can just look up records and just see how judges have behaved and if you look at things like it's not not just sentencing, but it's a, that's a, well as a metric, you can say, look, you know, the average sentence passed for this sort of offence is X, but the range is enormous. The range is absolutely huge between different judges on different days, mm. uh, and you know, the statisticians crunch the numbers and show the the, the radical deviation from from the norm uh, that can exist. And 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 I think that's that's a huge. Uh, progression for us to recognise yes. that, that, that those decisions were very noisy and needed to be um, really put into something more of an algorithm. And now yes. we have the, the...
0: Yeah, your point on algorithm sensing procedure. I mean, a lot of the stuff we're going to talk about, and perhaps we should make the points before we make the caveats against them, but an argument against um, the role of noise would be that, obviously in the UK, we have quite clear sentencing guidelines and we have quite clear case law. So, in a sense, there is, as you say, a sort of procedure and the guidelines should, in theory, uh, not allow for um, bias to have too much of a role in the outcome of the case.
1: Well, in sentencing, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, the difficulty is then trials, where, where it's not mm. such a simple procedure with a, a, a metric, an outcome, um, that you can measure so, so easily so um, I think medicine's another area where sometimes you leave it to the intuition of the individual doctor and there's a lot of psychology about when we should rely on intuition and sometimes it is now right that doctors are forced to go through um, much more algorithmic type of decision making where, where they must follow flow charts and they, they they must follow a process which will help de-bias mm. um, yeah, so definitely. i think as, as sorry
0: sorry no just i'm really glad that you raised intuition there because as you say a lot of um a lot of industries require a, a level of intuition you've also already mentioned medicine but law as well and knowing something instinctively is very important as practitioners and surely that can be quite hard to differentiate sort of intuition from decision that we reach through bias or sort of values or sort of cognitive distance whatever it is we're going to talk about later so how can we best train so that it's our intuition we're listening to and rather than this sort of subconscious subliminal bias that we're all kind of uh, we don't seem to be immune from. Um,
1: the, there's some lovely research into it's one, thing, one of the, the topics that Kahneman deals with, is, is when should you trust intuition and when should you not trust intuition. We, we learn a lot subconsciously. We have a subconscious system of thinking which is locking away thousands and thousands and millions, I, I guess, really, of experiences. And we don't know often very well how to consciously draw from that bank, but we know how to do it intuitively. Um, and sometimes our intuition is carrying more valuable data set than our conscious mind is, and there's a lot of psychologists raging on both sides of you know you should trust your intuition more and you should trust your your uh, you shouldn't trust it it'll lead you astray, mm. um, and it's a huge topic with with as I say pe- people doing a lot on either side, um, but I think one thing that we probably lack is guidance for judges and jurors as to when you can just look at a defendant and go, they just look innocent or they just look shifty and they look guilty. Mm. Are those intuitive readings of people absolutely ideal? And we should put a juror, uh, put the jury face to face with the defendant and let them look at them and appraise them. Or should we put the defendant behind a screen and say, no, that's the absolute last thing you should do because you are... You're you using intuitive judgment in an area where we're not intuitively very good. I mean, for example, it's a huge topic, but just to pick one example, we we've quite recently, I think, debunked the idea we're good at spotting a liar. Mm. We, we think we are, but we're not. We're really, really not. There's there's a lot of incredible research. Um, uh, a psychologist called Levine is is the chap to look for if you if you want to look at the, the real research on on spotting liars, and we're Barely better than chance. I mean, if you just literally showed someone lying and said, "Are they lying or not?" You give them a backstory. You then see the person, and you think, "Oh yeah, yeah, I think they're definitely telling the truth." When we have to call out liars in in clinical experiments, we are basically at chance. We could just pick. You could pick randomly, and you mm. would do just as well as people who who've been trained in trying to do lie detection and look for the flicker of the eyebrow. All of that is pretty much debunked as being. We're not intuitively good at that, where we think we are.
0: But is there a way that we can perhaps train our intuition and how? um, Because, I mean, as you say, in, in, in the book that we've spoken about briefly before, the Gladwell book, Blink, on how they're able to train their intuition. And I think one of the key concepts for that was the speed of what was it, the speed of confirmation? Feedback. Feedback that's, yeah Oops, sorry, yeah. So that's
1: one of the reasons we're very bad at spotting liars is we're completely unaware of how many times we are being lied to. Yes. So we get, no. you know, if someone successfully pulls off a lie, they don't yeah. come back the next day and say, I lied to you yesterday and got away with it. It's
0: like doing, sorry, I'm always going to relate this to exams because I feel like that's all I've done recently, but it's like doing loads of practice papers, but never getting the answers, all the results compared to doing them and going over them afterwards, I'd imagine.
1: Perfect. So, I mean, for example, a lawyer, good example, who does sentencing hearings time after time after time, estimates a sentence, predicts what a judge will do, goes through the process and then gets the sentence. And then you think, okay, I'm now becoming intuitively very good at knowing what judges will do on sentence.
0: And a fantastic example in the medical profession uh, uh, with regard to um, someone who's in sort of high-stress situations, the emergency doctors, by comparison, who sort of get feedback on their actions almost immediately, Okay. Yeah, they kill, know, the they, if, kill,
1: they kill the student. <laughs> they kill me. They kill where them. is <laughs> your mind
0: at? No-one <laughs> wants to kill the student here. No, hopefully. they
1: kill the patient. They I'm kill the patients
0: say. if they do something wrong. Comparatively, someone like a, a radiologist who they don't get their sort of estimation their, they don't get feedback on what they consider to be an intuitive decision for weeks and weeks or their, months or
1: even years or maybe never maybe not even, even they, at they all, pass it off
0: they sort of uh, they don't train their intuition in the same way so it's all in that sort of feedback loop and how you can speed that up
1: exactly so so that's one of the ways to know should you trust an expert so someone for example who can sniff a wine and say this will be brilliant in five years and they, they, they try to encourage you to buy that, you know, that, that sort of expert is the one you should be very, very suspicious of because they don't, they're do not they not part of an immediate feedback cycle, mm-hmm. which means their intuition is pr- probably just guesswork. Mm-hmm. And, and there are several psychologists who have done some very powerful experiments to really show that a lot of people claiming expertise have absolutely nothing of the sort.
0: Brilliant. I mean, we've, we've gone straight sort of into the meat of it, but maybe we could take a step back and actually talk about some of the more specific um, psychological... Uh, cognitive um, examples so the key one i think here is cognitive dissonance so i mean we could go into 100 examples of psychology and bias but james would you like to perhaps focus on uh, explaining what cognitive dissonance is
1: well it's certainly one of my favorites and of course as a lawyer it's the one that one of the ones that really makes my my ears pick up because it's talking about evidence and do we make decisions on evidence And judges implore juries, obviously to try a case and they swear to try the case according to evidence. Mm. But the reality seems to be and it was just such an amazing if you start to to read um, I think Leon Festinger is is the sort of uh, the key source material for this um, that we do very little based on evidence in terms of our decision making. Uh, We really follow our values what we really want to feel good is to make decisions that align with our values. And the, that's probably not a surprise. What the huge surprise is, is how incredibly crafty we are at tricking ourselves, de- deceiving ourselves, deluding ourselves on just pretending we don't hear the evidence if the evidence doesn't fit uh, a link that we've made between behaviour and our mm. values. Let me give one quick example, classic example, more of my generation, Shiffa, than yours, <laughs> is is smoking. You know, for 20, 30 years, um, billions of us consumed, you know, astronomical numbers of cigarettes. Yeah. And the tobacco companies were back in the day were the sort of the companies like the apples that the really influential that mm. they were everywhere and the governments would scream evidence at us you know 38 percent of people who smoke more than this number will have a 40 percent chance of getting cancer whatever it is so statistics being yelled by by one side and just images of cool cowboys on the other, <laughs> and we all then smoked, even though we were killing ourselves and bankrupting ourselves what is the the process.
0: identity of it, as you say, and the values. Sort of, so our
1: value, so we, we have juggle, we've got three or four values in our mind. Oh, and it's a close call. Do I value my health? Yes. But do I value being cool just that little <laughs> bit more? And the answer then is yes. And as soon as we have a a predominant value, I want this to be, you know, this is the value I hold, the belief I hold. Then I act on that. And once I've established the link between that behavior and that value, I will ignore any evidence Mm. that comes along uh, to disrupt that link. And that evidence that might disrupt me causes what what they call dissonance in my mind. I feel very uneasy. So what I do is I do anything I can to make that dissonance go away, and the thing I tend to do is just ignore the bloody evidence. I mean, I really... You know, that, that's what we do. Just, I just la, 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 I'm not listening. And, <laughs> so and that's the worry. yeah. which
0: are not compatible, and you justify it, you attempt to justify it with a sort of third belief or kind of just not listening to the evidence at all. And I love the smoking example but uh, I, I kind of wish you'd have drawn on the cult example because I think that one is so great so if you wouldn't mind
1: oh very briefly so, so what got Festinger into this whole area this
0: is, this is sorry so it's very interesting go on
1: it is an amazing story I mean he was in the 1960s and I oh I think he was in California it must be somewhere like that at a time in history where where cults end of the world cults were quite popular and he saw a local advert in his paper um, encouraging people to come and join this end of the world cult. And they were very definitive. They said the world will end, and they had a date and a time and everything. And you, you, everybody will die unless, unless you remember this cult, in which case God will save, save them. So die or be saved. Mm. And Festinger thought, oh, I want to be in the room when the world doesn't end at the time that they said it would. <laughs> yeah. And who wouldn't want to be in the room to see how they dealt with it? Mm. Um, And so he joined the cult uh, and he was there. He literally was there as the minutes counted down, clicked down to the apocalypse. And, you know, two minutes, one minute. And and just the sense of astonished excitement as, oh my God, we're about to be, God is going to somehow remove us, us, Yeah, Yeah, the the, the spaceship, whatever it was, uh, Mm. the the teleportation device, whatever. (laughs) We, We will materially disintegrate, whatever. And, and the flood or whatever God's going to do to wipe out the earth is going to happen any second now. And, of course, then the clock strikes midnight and it, it mm. doesn't happen. Then what's the right time? What does your watch say? You, you know, he describes a sort of sense of frenzy at midnight as their brains are trying to cope with the fact that their anticipated event has, hasn't happened. So
0: you have the two beliefs, the f- f- firm belief that the world is going to end and then the obvious...
1: Well, we then have evidence. So evidence they, they have... They, their value is is the, the thing that they hold is is we're doing the right thing mm. uh, and this cult is right and I've, I've been acting on that on that belief and on that value. So then evidence comes along. The evidence says, but you're wrong. You're, yeah, uh, we're, still, we're still here. Yeah, yeah you, we're still here. The world has not ended. So now you need to change your actions because the evidence tells you to change your action. Mm. But what he realises is that we don't change the action; yeah. we just ignore so how do the they, evidence. How did
0: they deal with this?
1: So they went into this sullen silence apparently for a while, and there was this sort of terrible sulk going on as they all just sat there, staring in his face, thinking, "Oh my goodness, what do we do?" Mm. And then one of uh, the leader of the cult says, "God has just revealed to me, we did such a good job." God has extended the time frame uh, for, for humanity's existence and so we must carry on doing precisely what we were doing beforehand, Yeah, uh, leaving, of course, their behaviour to match their values and the evidence was utterly ignored and they just mm. found a way.
0: And they're still going. Uh, well, <laughs> yeah. I, don't, I don't... I think of variation. A variation of actually. They do. They do still stick along for a long time. But, yes, I, that's just such a perfect example, I think, of how how they sort of overcame the, the opposing evidence to what was just such a strong-held belief. But I, I feel like I don't want to get away from the topic too much. So this phenomenon, this cognitive dissonance, how can we understand this? How does this undermine decision-making in the courtroom?
1: Well, I think the the point then is, is number one is lies understand that. And lies then understand... If you want to change a juror's mind, a vote from guilty to not guilty or not guilty to guilty, you you ought just to talk about the evidence, but you, you aren't actually addressing what is motivating them. And that will be a whole set of values, and it's quite difficult to talk about values to jurors without judges saying but hang on evidence you you can't this is this is this is sort of somehow a very dirty conversation
0: Mm, you have to root it in the evidence when you address them
1: but the reality is is i I think you need to think about what values the jurors bring into the room and you might be lucky that all their values will cancel each other out
0: Mm, i was going to say the key caveat to that would be that Juries all individually come through with different biases, they're supposedly representative of society, and hopefully, that yeah, they mitigate one another in a sense. Or
1: so, that is a very, very good argument in favor of the jury system. Um, unless you get a runaway jury where they all align to the same negative bias, or they all have the wrong value and they infect each other, and there's a, a, a sort of bias cascade, you might call it, throughout the jury um i mean one example of that is the oj simpson trial mm. where where the lawyers clearly diverted the trial away from the evidence and it became all about attitudes towards race um and uh, so the evidence was was absolutely lost in 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 all of that um so it's a funny one, you, you, there's no one to watch the jury and say, mm. are, are they bringing false values, or, or, or are they bringing values into the room which they shouldn't, if, if they are they are canceling each other out, is someone mediating this conversation that mm. they're having, and are they being true to the evidence? Uh, or, or are all, all sorts of other political and other belief systems...
0: Being given a, a sort of speakerphone in the sort of private discussion that the jury is having. Well,
1: I mean, we've always said we'll never do that, but the, that that's the worry. Sh- should we? Should we perhaps? Um, I mean, you get very plausible um, defendants, and I, I, I'm thinking of a few from my own practice, where you might have a doctor or a clergyman or a teacher someone terrifically middle-class and very respectable, mm. um, charged with a historic sexual offence. And they're very plausible witnesses. And they're basically saying, look how respectable I am and look what how awful it would be for me yeah. and my family if you were to uh, punish me for something I did, did a long time ago. And, and the worry is that the jury might be really affected by uh, those sorts of issues mm. and, and their value is, is, is not, you know, to, to break up families, which of course a guilty verdict might do.
0: But again, it's drawing completely away from the evidence that's being put It in is. And,
1: yeah. and we never know yeah. whether or not they are being drawn away from the evidence on, on these values or, or if they're not. And they never get a little mini lecture on cognitive dissonance well, and, or, or anything all, like yeah,
0: that. How how... If if we are moving to a place where we can better understand cognitive dissonance and its effect on our decision making, how would you would you envision a way to prevent something like this from taking hold of the jury?
1: That's a generous question, but probably above my pay grade. Would yeah, a, really put you uh, on the I think, there. I think a government <laughs> a government uh, uh, working group or something. But like, but I I I think you know we use these. We have this like a deck of judicial directions, don't we, where where judges talk to jurors about things. Hmm. Um, And I don't know, because I'm not involved in the training of the judiciary or or anything as high-powered as that, but you begin to wonder whether or not... some of the effects of bias and cognitive illusion and all these sorts of things. There's so many of them. You go through. I mean, we, we, we were talking about which ones we might cover today. And we're thinking, oh my goodness, there's just too hundreds, many. Yeah. Um, and how many of them do we think we ought to consider addressing? A, and and have the judge give directions to jurors on this. But of course, as lawyers, we're we're not you know we're not trained psychologists, and mm. so we don't really know it. And it feels it feels very all very uncomfortable. But of course.
0: I mean, there is, this does seem to be a partial recognition because, I mean, with so many of the judges' directions, they say, don't be swayed by what I say. So, obviously, there's, there's a recognition that the jury are going to be swayed if there's not this sort of disclaimer beforehand.
1: I mean, that's a lovely idea, isn't it? That, that one of the biases that we do know is that we take, we take many, many shortcuts. These are strictly called heuristics rather than biases, but we can take lots of mental shortcuts. And one shortcut is... I'll just believe the person who's most influential in the room. Rather than assessing all the evidence, whoever seems to be most confident and influential, I'll just go with what they say. It's a very, very simple and easy shortcut. So, of course, if the judge appears to have a view, then all the jury will instantly fall, follow suit. Mm-hmm. So, I think recognising that that mental systemic vulnerability, then judges caveated and say, but, you know, don't... <laughs> don't do this. Don't, don't
0: do it. It's the same really? as well. I mean, but the whole idea of advocacy is to be as persuasive, persuasive as you can. But but then when you have the sort of... The attempts of the... Not the attempts, but you're also, on the one hand, trying to lessen the influence of the judge. And well, I suppose it's difficult when you find something like, a, like an expert, because obviously their role is to bring a level of expertise that the jury don't have. So how much should we allow an expert to influence what the jury say?
1: Well, it's a lovely example. Let me just backtrack ever so slightly, because you you gave a nice example that you've got two advocates trying to be the most confident and and, and the jury might just be swayed by who's most confident. Um, And yes, that's possibly true. And and we live in a very privileged legal system where we have advocates all of a high ability because they've been Mm. well-trained and that's what they do all the time. It's not like other jurisdictions where... Um, a, a lawyer that might be convincing for half their life pops into court to do one trial a year so so you know they might be very poor in advocacy compared to another. we should have so that that 's a, a wonderful benefit in our system, which I think helps mm-hmm. and we also do the funny thing is is also conceal a little bit of our faces we we wear wigs and we don 't you know, the judge can't look and go, well, that that one has the more expensive suit, so I guess <laughs> they're more successful, so I guess they're better, which means I guess that they're right, which means, like, you know, we, we do try to standardise dress. That's quite a nice... I don't think that's why it started, but it's quite a good reason for maintaining yeah. uh, robing in court. So there are, you know, there, there are these pros and cons. But you're right. I mean, just, just a nice example of how um, we are all vulnerable to all these biases... Um, mm. we we have been bitten a couple of times when we've over relied on experts, and we've just said oh they're the experts so so we uh, we've not challenged experts as much as we should have done because mm. even as lawyers we're we're terribly good at critical thinking and so we think <laughs> um but but you know there's a the famous example of of professor sir roy Meadows who who gave some uh, frankly wrong statistics to a jury and mm. didn't it the trial process didn't didn't pick it up and correct it, and the appeal process for many years didn't really pick it up or correct it properly either. It, it, it's a, a bit of a systemic failure.
0: This is the um, statistic about a woman whose both her children. Yes. And,
1: yeah. So this was a Sally Clark who who both her children died, and there was no particular evidence that she killed them. But what had happened is that the the expert said, well, it's statistically incredibly unlikely that they just die. Of natural causes, so the presumption was that they must have been murdered.
0: And he uses just a huge, what was it? He said something like one in seventy-six that million or something. So
1: he, what he did, the statistical error that he made, is he said that the statistical again, we're not economists, but <laughs> the statistical or statisticians, but the statistical likelihood of a child dying for no reason that a doctor can find is whatever it is, 60,000 to 1 against. But she had it twice, and so he, in order to figure out how likely it is that two children would die without any apparent medical explanation, he just squared the probability of 1. So he took his 67,000 and squared it and got 67 million, or he got tens of millions as a result. And that's totally flawed on the simple understanding that if there's some extraordinary medical complication with one child that causes them to die in a way that doctors don't understand, then that same error or defect in genetics will cause the second one to die much more likely than just the first one, just one by itself, see what I mean? So, see so if I if, if, um, So he, he was taking, his statistic would have been right if it were two different families with two totally different genetic situations. You'd square the probability of one and square it to get the probability of, of, of two. But if it's the same genetic um, defect behind both of them, the second one isn't as unlikely as the first. It's a lot more probable that you'll get another one with the same defect. Mm. But that wasn't that simple. You know, even I, with very very low grasp of statistics, get that that it doesn't make sense to, to square. it. So his 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 figure is out by literally millions. Mm.
0: But so of that, course this figure then... I mean, it really, it was sort of, I would have thought, just listening to that, it would be the responsibility of the defence advocate to bring in their own expert and really kind of undermine this. Is yeah, that,
1: it was... I mean, I, I, I have to be clear, I wasn't part of that process and I... I, I, I
0: you weren't on the trial. I wasn't, then. yes. <laughs> OK. Um,
1: but interestingly, there's a second... Uh, bias that operated, I think, in that situation. And this one has been tested in America and judges have been tested about their susceptibility for this bias. It's called the inverse fallacy bias. So the idea is that if you're told that one explanation is incredibly unlikely, then we have a bias to think that the other explanation must be correspondingly likely. Mm. We, We make a presumption about how likely an one explanation is by by inverting the probability of the other. Mm. So, you know, if it's incredibly unlikely that these, child, these children die um, without medical reason, then we begin to think murder is a really likely thing. Mm. But it doesn't work like that. You can have two incredibly unlikely explanations for one event. It could be incredibly unlikely that murder is what's at play and also incredibly unlikely... It's just the way you, you, something extraordinary has happened. There are only two possibilities, and neither of them are likely, but we mm. don't think that it's way. It's almost like
0: our brain fills in the gap between...
1: It's it's this shortcut, always. It's a shortcut. Well, if one thing isn't likely, rather than investigating how likely the other thing is, I'll just presume, because very often if one thing is unlikely, the other one is the the right answer. Mm -hmm. So it's just a shortcut. It's just a presumption. It's just a bias. But again, not based
0: on the evidence.
1: Not based on evidence, and statistically sometimes very, very wrong. So what we got then was a conviction against Sally Clark, who took her own life in desperation. I mean, we lost life over this one. Because a combination of two biases, I think a bias towards the expert mm. and a bias towards uh, the inverse fallacy mm. uh, led us to, to one of the most tragic miscarriages of justice.:
0: Yes, that's, that, that's, that's a really great example, I think to illustrate what we're saying. I mean've we've, sort of, we've covered sort of inverse fallacy, we've covered heuristics, we've covered cognitive dissonance, that's literally just in the space of 20 minutes, and there are literally hundreds more. And in terms of mitigating for these issues, I mean, firstly, we have to recognise them more, and I, I recognise them in our training, in the way that we train, potentially the way that we sort of train juries, the way that we train our legal profession, our judiciary. Do you see the profession moving towards somewhere where we can accept the role and how the role role that this plays, and how we can perhaps mitigate for it?
1: Well, it, I mean, it would be great. Um, I am not a formally trained psychologist. I'm just a lawyer who started reading some books and thought this is really, really interesting and we all ought to know this stuff. Um, But I mean, I've worked with one of the largest global law firms that have said we'd like some training from you just to understand a little bit better about how our our brains work. And I think there seems to be an appetite and and I'm I'm beginning to to get some traction with, with law enforcement who are interested to, to, to know about th- this stuff as well so um i haven't on my travels found many other people who are practicing lawyers but have become excited by psychology um it so is, there we go so I, I don't know maybe i'm maybe I, I just need to be connected to some other people but I, I i sense that there is an appetite to begin to have these conversations mm-hmm. and I, I i think as long as all of us all we ever want to do is just be very good at, at what we do.
0: Mm, but we should also question the system and ensure that it is as clean as possible for high-quality yeah. advocacy. Because if you have all these... And it goes back to the, like, the discussion and the ability for an individual to cascade and potentially turn the jury um, against an individual without with very little consideration of the evidence. I mean, is there any way that we could introduce a sort of uh, a process to mitigate for that...
1: Well, I mean one thing that I, I I see large commercial organizations begin to do is to have somebody whose sole job it is, is to facilitate and help an organization making a big decision, to make sure they're doing it in what you might call a hygienic way, to have decision hygiene, to look for biases and to introduce measures to make sure that the decision making is is as bias-free as possible. Mm. And it, it's a nice idea. It's not terribly realistic commercially, but I think it would be amazing to have somebody neutral mm. who swears an oath to be very private and say nothing about what happened in the jury room, but a who will facilitate. Yeah, yeah. To sit with the jury. Um, and, you know, for example, if there is one very, very dominant character who's bossing the conversation in the jury, mm that Hopefully that's even a, a
0: lawyer in the jury. Yeah, well
1: now we can put lawyers in the jury which is a terrible idea, but we can do it now. <laughs> that people's ideas, then I mean one thing you'd do if you did this commercially is you, you wouldn't always let everybody know who was mm. having each of the thoughts because yeah. otherwise everyone just defers to the the, the big cheese in the room. So what one thing you would do commercially is you'd get everyone to write down their views and an independent facilitator would read some views out and say, these are the views that are held by the people in this room, but I don't want everyone to know who holds which view because I want people to look at the view without assigning it to a person. And letting people
0: defer to who they consider as being the most competent yes. individual. But that's not necessarily the person with the best idea.
1: No, exactly. So one of the things you get in organisations that want to be more agile is being very clear to be able to listen to anybody and Mm. ideas to come from anywhere and not to be immediately dismissed because they're not from someone in a a high position of authority. Mm. So all these things that you can begin to do with critical decisions in in commerce, are are we prepared to open ourselves up in law where we're very traditional and and, and maybe a little bit slow-moving? Are we thinking about these things for the critical decisions that we're making?
0: Yes, yes. Well, I think that that's a really excellent place to leave (laughs) it. Um, James, thank you so much for coming in and sharing your fantastic expertise. I I think this is such an exciting intersection between law and psychology, and it's definitely a growing area. area. As you say, it is a traditional profession, but this is definitely something that's gaining traction, and it's definitely our duty to try and uh, make the judicial sphere as clean as possible so that we can provide a really high, we, we, so we can adhere to the rule of law and provide as much independence and sort of the ability to judge a case based on evidence rather than our own psychology or, or imperfect psychology or the impact of some sort of uh, very loud overbearing individual. So I think that this is definitely a, an, an area to watch in the future. And, um, yes, are there any, any final remarks that you... No,
1: no. <laughs> uh, I mean, apart from I'm independent and free for hire, but uh, <laughs> yes, uh, forgive love. the plug. Thank you very he's much well indeed. Plug himself.
0: <laughs> and uh, the And um, the article which you will have written, R-Writing? Are it,
1: yes, In it's In process. Done.
0: Um, I'm definitely going to sort of link that and plug that as well. Perfect. Well, it's I'm on
1: LinkedIn. And, and so if anybody is interested, come <laughs> and find me.
0: I'm sure they will. Thank you so much, James. And um, that's all we have time for. So thank you.